I'm Laura Runs with the Cato Institute, and today we're talking about transportation, privatization options, and public-private partnerships. We have a great panel of speakers for you this afternoon, so I'll briefly introduce them and then turn over the podium to them. Our first speaker today is Shirley Wybera, who is a senior transportation and policy analyst at the Reason Foundation. She previously served as Virginia's Secretary of Transportation and was also a senior policy advisor and special assistant for policy for former U.S. Secretary of Transportation Elizabeth Dole. She authored Virginia's Public-Private Transportation Act of 1995, which is considered the model public-private partnership legislation in the United States. Our second speaker is Gabriel Roth, who is a research fellow at the Independent Institute and author of Roads in a Market Economy, as well as several other works. He previously spent 20 years working on five different continents as a transportation economist for the World Bank. Gabriel has authored studies for the governments of New Zealand and Sri Lanka, as well as a multitude of other organizations and served as the president of the Services Group, a consulting firm specializing in market-oriented approaches to economic development. Our final speaker today is Randall O'Toole, who is a Cato Institute senior fellow working on urban growth, public land, and transportation issues. Randall has published four books, the most recent being Gridlock, Why We're Stuck in Traffic and What to Do About It, as well as numerous Cato policy papers, op-eds, and articles for national journals and newspapers. Randall has spoken in dozens of cities about free market environmental issues. And with that, I will turn the podium over to Shirley. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Laura. And uh, good, to, good to be here. And I sort of know a bunch of you all. I think I've seen you at least around the halls of Congress from time to time. Um, what I want to talk about is public-private partnerships and just set up a, a quick framework here as to why these are important tools. All right, now if I do this right. You all are familiar with uh, the traditional funding. Uh, Congress uh, puts together, I mean, we collect the fuel taxes. Uh, and there's a few other fees, but it's overwhelmingly the fuel tax. Uh, uh, and states, it, it, at one point, paid for 90% of the in interstate. And we have a few toll agencies around the, around the country. Um, the main source of funding, I mean, it's dedicated. The, the states, I, I put here, own virtually all of the highways. I say that because we've got Indian lands and a uh, few other uh, roads that are, are elsewhere, uh, not necessarily the uh, usual roads. Uh, state and, uh, and the states typically have highway trust funds also. So the Congress uh, gives, uh, allocates the money to the states via a formula. And then once it gets to the states, that also, they also typically have a formula. Now, what are we facing? We're facing that you know, these interstates are over 50 years old. That's probably twice the age of most of you. And uh, the, the cost of re, you know, you always hear there's this great need and what these big numbers are. The cost of the interstate to replace the interstate is not included in the need study. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Um, and we're, we know we've got a lot more traffic now. We're undersized, it's just not, um, it, it's just not. It's just not going to be good. Be good. <clears throat> we all know that we need a lot. Uh, we need a, an infusion of uh, capital into the highway trust funds, both at the state and local, uh, state and federal level. But we also know there's no real appetite for increasing the fuel tax. Um, but so we've got to find some new ways to do business. Um, there's a variety of places you can go see how big this number is. It's in the trillions. Um, these are always hard to, um, to, to sort of handle, and the, the billions per year, I mean, are just huge. Uh, and that's whether you maintain it or try and improve it. Um, so what are public-private partnerships? I think everybody hears that word, but think about what it is. <clears throat> and it's a way to leverage not only the capital, but the expertise of the private sector. Um, and it's an, exp it's, a, it's an effective way to finance projects. Now notice I used financing, not funding. 
Those are very different words. And this is a way to bring about and to finance projects, in other words, to get upfront capital. Um, we have a range of options in the uh, public P3 world, the public-private partnerships. Uh, typically, what state DOTs do is they design a project, they put it out to bid, and then it's built. Design, bid, built. And that's the traditional way to do it. What we've got here is a range of options. Design, build, in other words, combining that all together. And then we've got design, build, finance. Again, we're saying financing, not funding. And design, build, operate, maintain. And then we have a concession model, and this is sort of the special one. Um, so what do we got? And this sort of lists the strengths of the private sector. What have they got that the government entity doesn't have? Um, newer technologies, the efficiency, and um, what I always say is, you know, if you're in the government, and I don't know if this is true on the Hill, but I can tell you having been in both the federal and the state governments, uh, if something happened to my computer or I needed a new, you know, cell phone, it took me how long to get one? You know, the private sector can just go out and buy it. So that's the kind of efficiency that you've got in the private sector. What does the public sector have? I mean, this is not to say anything's wrong with the public sector. This is to say the public sector has its legitimate place in, in the playing field. They have the legal authority. They have the, you know, the protection, the overview of the procurement policy. Um, and they have a, a, a perspective that perhaps the private sector doesn't have. But, and they've got de dedicated and, and uh, wonderful personnel. I had a great number of wonderful people that worked for me at VDOT, at the at Virginia Department of Transportation. But they have a lot of underutilized assets. Um, partnerships have been, uh, I mean, we're using them everywhere, not just in Virginia, but all around. One of the biggest users, by the way, of public-private partnerships is the military in their housing. Uh, many people don't know that. But you can see all the places that we use P3s. I threw this up here only to tell you, I mean, public-private partnerships have been around, around a long time. I mean, frankly, if you look at it, the original Transcontinental Railroad was probably a public-private partnership in an interesting way. But when we began to formalize it, we're looking at some very recent history in Virginia. The first bill was a one-off for the uh, Dulles Greenway. Um, California did uh, some projects. Those were 1988. That's not that long ago. Um, Arizona tried it. Washington State had some issues. Uh, had a had a bill. Minnesota included. They had a local veto, and everybody went, "Oof, that's not going to work." And we came up with the bill in 1995. And what was unique about the bill was having the both solicited and unsolicited. And I must tell you, folks, every every P3 project in transportation right now in Virginia is unsolicited. Just sort of FYI. Uh, it's all modes of transportation, it's operations, maintenance, as well as capital projects. Um, and its locals are included, but they have no veto power. Um, and it's still a model. And in fact, Texas just re redid their bill, and it looks very much like that 1995 um, Virginia bill. <clears throat> um, basically, the P3 model—it's um, a—it's it's, a—it's and it's—it's it's really good for what we call big lumpy projects. You know, those big ones that uh, basically the DOTs are are not. Uh, it's very difficult to do. You've got to collect all this, figure out a way to get all the money dedicated to one project. Are you taking it away from elsewhere in the state? Um, it's got some other great things because the private sector, if they're going to own it or operate it or whatever, they want to design it to 
um, basically the long-term, the life cycle cost. I think you, uh, the DOTs, I mean, basically you're on the design bid build. You, you design it, you bid it, you're going out for a low bid. You typically break up the projects in itsy bitsy pieces. I mean, you don't take the big picture view. Um, we've got a great track record, not only in the U.S., but around the world. Um, types of projects we're seeing right now, and I'm not going to read it to you, but uh, we're really looking at all kinds of things. Many of you may live out by the hot lanes, uh, out by the beltway. I know it's messing up traffic for now, but it'll be great when we get there. Hot lanes are high occupancy toll lanes. They're in the middle of where we have the free lanes now, and you're going to have the option if you're driving by yourself, you can be in the, the general purpose, the free lanes, or you can hop into the high occupancy toll lanes and pay a toll because you've got a guaranteed time frame of when you're going to get there. And so that, this is an important project. We've got other managed lanes projects all around the country. Um, we've got bridges that are being replaced with P3 type projects. Uh, we haven't seen uh, Tappan Zee and the Port Authority uh, go out to bid. They didn't get their bill this year, but we're, we're getting close. Um, we've got new routes. I mean, think about this. When the interstate was designed, I mean, Las Vegas was a little baby town, and so was Phoenix, and we don't even have an interstate between them. And this is going to come on as a toll road. <clears throat> um, these are just the, what we see at Reason as some of the advantages. Um, the, the idea of, of being able, you know, when people look at a project, they decide to pay for it, I mean, with, whether it's a toll or not. And uh, there's a number of ways that we're doing projects today that we didn't see before. Um, the biggest thing in all of this is the transfer of risk. And that is a subject that we could, and that Randall probably could too, we could spend probably about an hour each talking about the transfer of risk. Because when you can define the project, turn it over to the private sector, and they provide a, a proposal and assume the risk, not only of financing, of building, of uh, if there's something wrong with the surface, the ground, or if they're going to be uh, the completion risk, if you will, this makes, this is how you get some of the efficiencies in the project. <clears throat> all right, you may say, all right, fine, we got toll agencies all over. We all know the Port Authority or Kansas or wherever you're, you're from. Why don't we just keep going back to the toll authorities? Well, part of, the, part of the issue is that they typically, you know, they're government agencies. They operate very much like the state DOTs. And that's not being, I mean, I ran one. I can't be critical of the people. But their hands are tied frequently. And, but we've got, with the P3 model, the important things when we've got these big projects and we've got these very complex issues. And the private sector can bring many things that are listed here. The, the, the complex financial structure. This isn't just going out and issuing bonds. I mean, we've got uh, TIFIA. I think most of you know what TIFIA is. It's a loan guarantee. We've got uh, a number of other, you know, whether it's, it's equity, it's, uh, it's regular bond financing. It's, it's very complicated, and they can bring that. They've got new, uh, there's new capitals. There's billions of dollars out there waiting to invest in the U.S. market. They're investing everywhere else in the world in much more riskier economies, much riskier economies than we are. And so they're looking to invest. And like I said, we've got this long-term view of why this would be, you know, the right way to do it. Is it for every project? Absolutely not. Is it for some projects, those big lumpy ones? Yes, and if you can take those off the top, then you can kind of do your traditional stuff down here on the bottom and keep rolling along. It's not for everything. Um, we've done other projects around the country. It's not just toll roads. Uh, Union Station here in DC, I worked for Elizabeth Dole at the time. Uh, when we actually started that, we dug, we, we broke ground, literally, in the uh, area of Union Station that is now the main floor 
it was a dirt floor at the time. Windows blown out, birds flying overhead. Uh, but that's a P3 project. Um, these are a number of the things that uh, the tools that have been given to the states from the reauthorization. This is the safety Lou bill, which we're, you know, hoping to see reauthorized and even uh, a friendlier way to P3s. Uh, SEP 15 is a way to get uh, early project approval, and PENTA-P is the transit sort of version of the same thing. These are all the states, because this is really a state. We don't need federal legislation to approve it. We just need federal tools to encourage. And these are, this is currently the states. We've got now about 32 states. We've got two states that are still, uh, we, they're still in session. We may see those added this year. So we've made a lot of headway since basically the, the mid-90s. And well, 24 states, they've actually used them. We've got a couple of states that have the bill, but they haven't used it yet. And, uh, but, basically, but since 1993, look at that, folks. That's, that's $21.7 billion worth of highway projects. That's a lot. That's more than we're going to see authorized, typically. <clears throat> so here are the benefits. Listed them out. These are all the things I've been talking about. The, uh, again, I cannot stress any more than to say this transferring of risk is really one of the key issues. And I can, we can talk about this later. Any one of you, I have cards. And if any of you want to have sort of more detail on that, let me know. The flexibility, the, uh, the, de the delivery of the project. And usually when you do a contract as the public agency, I mean, you've got a guaranteed end time there. And that's very important. You, you know what you're going to get. So, um, oops, I think that one, did I go the wrong way? Um, here's why contractors and labor should like these P3s. Expands the pie. I mean, come on, there's more, more stuff sooner, uh, if it's finance sooner. Um, what we saw, and particularly in Virginia in our first one, uh, I'll tell you a quick story because my time's up, but we put out, we had something called Pocahontas Parkway. It's about a $225 million project. It's down by Richmond. Um, <clears throat> and, we, and this was done by, by floor. And um, so everybody, you know, the, the panic was, oh my God, floor's gonna bring on all this equipment, all these people. They brought in something like 20 people. They started hiring all the local contractors to do all the pieces of the work. And that's typical. And so I put out a bid one day for a you know, the usual bid pro process we do every month. I didn't get very many bids for things. So I called the head of the road builders group. I said, what, what's going on? He said, we're so damn busy with that big project. We don't know if we have time to bid on your little stuff. Hello. <laughs> so, I mean, this, there, we've got some people who can go out and talk about these as being a good idea. Um, if, if, if a state were worried about it, you can put it in the contract to say you're required to. But I got to tell you, most often you don't need to. Um, the, um, These are some of the myths that you often see that uh, the government will lose control. This can all be done in the contract. And you really don't have to. I mean, these are, are good contracts. And if you think, I mean, if anything, uh, like the Chicago Skyway, if anything, you've got um, the Chicago Skyway is where Chicago um, um, leased out the um, the, the Skyway for 99 years. If anything, you've got more control because it's in the contract. On the Pocahontas Parkway, it's in the contract. On the hot lanes, it's in the contract. So you've got some real control. Oh, every now and then you hear say, oh my God, you know, it's Macquarie from Australia or it's Central from Spain. And wait a minute, they're not gonna roll up the road and take it with them, number one. And I always say, you know, these are the same, same states that go out and they, they, they try to get Mercedes-Benz or Volvo plants or, I mean, 
just explain this one to me. And um, non-competes, those are, those are something that aren't even, they're hardly even thought about anymore. That was an old, old issue. Um, others say there's, geez, there's no money out there anymore. I mean, we've got this financial crisis and so on. Believe me, folks, there's billions and billions. And the pension funds, the employee pension, state employee pension funds have decided to take a look at these long-term assets. Um, again, you can, um, a lot of this can be controlled in the, in the contract. Um, is it a panacea? Absolutely not. However, uh, it's one way to add to the toolbox for the states, and a lot of states, 32 or more, have recognized that, and they can add to their way of bringing uh, projects to their customers, their citizens in each state. And I, uh, like I said, have my card, and if any of you have any questions, I assume we're taking questions later, Randall. And uh, Laura, I should have asked you, you're in charge. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much. Is this the device? This or, is the device. Uh, yeah. I think you go. Now you're putting me on the spot. I don't even know. Yep. Yeah. Perfect. Well, I'd like to, first of all, thank you for inviting us here and for agreeing to listen to my heresies on privatizing roads. Uh, this is something that, uh, if it were to happen, uh, might even result in some people on Capitol Hill losing their jobs. So I think you're really uh, very brave. Um, but uh, I don't think it'll happen in the short term, probably not in your lifetimes. I want to speak about the long term and the short term. Uh, as far as the long term is concerned, um, private road ownership is now technically possible. Uh, why is it desirable? Uh, as Shirley said, uh, <clears throat> when enterprises are run by the public sector, they are run by nice people and efficient people and hard-working people. Uh, but there are various things that the, the public sector cannot do. Uh, uh, one is it cannot close down a project which has ceased to be effective. And second, well, this is very relevant for today, it, for some reason that you people probably know better than I do, it seems to be unable to charge users the fees required to keep the project going. As Shirley said, everybody agrees we need road infrastructure. And yet the federal government that is in charge of the Federal Highway Trust Fund seems to be unable to raise the fees paid by road users who want more investment in roads. Um, it is also very hard to raise public transport fees uh, by cities that own uh, public transport. It is seems to be impossible to raise um, landing and takeoff fees at, at airports. Uh, all these things the private sector can do and the public sector does not seem to be able to. Uh, well. Uh, as uh, you all know, the saying of this famous American philosopher, Will Rogers, the best way to deal with the road problem 
is to have government provide the vehicles and the private sector provide the roads. And this was very difficult in the past because of the problem of paying for roads. It was difficult to charge fees for roads without stopping vehicles and collecting coins. These times have now passed. Money can be collected electronically without vehicles having to stop. And it is as easy to collect money for using roads as for using cell phones. Uh, it is possible for road users to be immediately debited, as with your phone bill, for the providers to be immediately credited, and all this can be done uh, without breaking the privacy uh, of road users. How might a privately owned road system function? Uh, well, first of all, under a private system, every segment of road would have to have an owner who would be responsible for its use and who would charge for the use. Second, all road segments would have to be tolled. The reason for this is, if you, pass, if you were to have a system on which some roads were tolled and some not, uh, immediately there would be traffic avoiding the tolled roads and using the untold. Uh, if we consider the main one that would be tolled and the local roads, the one that would be untolled, you would get a big movement of traffic from main roads to local roads and you would get an intolerable situation which uh, I've seen in Manila where every single road is packed with traffic. Uh, I would like to see a system that where local people in their own district, if they themselves pay through property taxes for their own roads, for using the roads that they finance themselves, but uh, when they use other people's roads, of course they should be brought into the tolling system. Uh, for this, every vehicle would have to have uh, a unit inside it which uh, would record the travel of that vehicle um, and then the passengers uh, would pay in accordance with their bills. All these things can be done through GPS based system. This is what an in-vehicle unit might look like. This is a, a Siemens one. How would the billing system work? It could work in the same way that billing for telephone works now, in the way that billing for credit cards. In fact, the same people who now bill for telephone use or who bill for credit card use uh, could bill for road use they would receive information about total travel done, say, in a month, uh, but they would not get information about um, individual trips. Uh, this technology is well developed, uh, mostly in Europe, not here, uh, and um, the Europeans are very keen on privacy and are not, are very keen that individual trips should not be uh, recorded and given to the billers. Uh, well, as I say, this is all for the long term and um, I don't think it will affect uh, most of us uh, soon. What can be done in the short term? And I have listed a number of things here. First, there can be toll roads and specifically county toll road authorities. Um, there can be private firms maintaining government provided roads. There can be private firms providing hot lanes, high occupancy or toll lanes, which uh, Shirley mentioned. Um, such lanes can even be amalgamated into 
hot networks. And again, as Shirley mentioned, there can be concessions to private firms to improve roads or to maintain roads. Uh, starting with toll roads, uh, they have a long history in the United Kingdom and in the United States. In the 19th century, the whole road system of this country was built on the basis of toll roads under conditions that were incredibly more difficult than they are today. Uh, but the possibilities with toll roads are limited by the fact that they compete against free roads. And um, in the same way that you cannot solve the education problem by adding private schools to the present mix, um, one needs to have the whole system reorganized to get better results. Um, as for county toll road authorities, uh, there are many of those in Florida, in Texas. Um, they do not rely on state finances. They raise the money through the counties um, and they give local people much more control than people have with state roads or with federal funding. Um, but they are still would be um, organized by government. Um, the next point that I mentioned was private firms being used to maintain roads. Now, I think the expert on this <laughs> happens to be Shirley, because she has done that in Virginia, uh, where, which employs uh, private firms to maintain roads. So does the District of Columbia. The important thing is that the private firms are told what the results have got to be. They are told, for example, that the grass must not be higher than one inch on the side of the roads. But they are not told how to get that result, how to cut the grass, and so on. So the private firms have incentives to find ways to maintain roads in the cheapest and most effective way. Now what about high occupancy or toll lanes? Uh, again, as Shirley mentioned, this was started in 1995 uh, in California on State Route 91. Uh, tolls are electronically collected on new lanes built for the purpose. Not everybody has to use them. If people feel that they're in a hurry, uh, they pay the toll. The toll is adjusted, and it's adjusted in a way to ensure that traffic always runs uncongested. Uh, so the people who use these roads obviously benefit, otherwise they would not use them. What about people who don't use those roads, or who don't use those lanes? Well, of course, they also benefit, because there's less traffic on them. The providers of the road, in this case, it was a private company that conceived, financed, designed, built the road. They also benefit because they made a profit. So this is really, these roads are win-win-win situations. And the only problem I have with them is that they exempt high occupancy vehicles from payment. Uh, when we go to a hotel, we are not told by the management that if we were to share a room, we wouldn't have to pay for the room. Uh, I don't see why the same practice should not apply to using vehicles on roads. Now, how about amalgamating a number of these hot lanes into hot networks? Well, this was suggested um, in a paper actually published by Reason uh, by Bob Poole and Ken Olsky, and they actually went through a number of major uh, urban areas working out how networks of hot lanes could be connected together to provide networks. Uh, and they, they estimated that eight uh, cities, I've named them here, 
could be covered uh, and the total cost would be $50 billion. Now, I know that 50 billion might not sound very much uh, in this part of the world, in this, in this building, but uh, 50 billion is in fact um, as much as goes into the Highway Trust Fund in two years. It's a lot of money. And if we could have a, a program for designing such networks, um, this work could start immediately and it could produce um, shovel-ready projects, which everybody seems to be keen on. Uh, I just do not understand why, uh, with all the efforts that the government says that it is making to provide employment, not more work is done to provide uh, hot lanes in congested urban areas. Uh, highway concessions. Uh, this was started in Britain uh, under the Thatcher regime um, in, the 18, in the 1990s and uh, there are eight projects now working. They work well. Uh, the way that they work is that uh, the government, the highways agency specifies a road improvement and invites bids for it. Now the bid is how little a company is prepared to accept per vehicle mile for making the improvement. So one company would say, well, I will do this, but I want to be paid uh, two pennies per vehicle mile. Another company would want to be paid uh, uh, four pennies. The cheapest bid is, the lowest bid is accepted. Um, the way of counting the traffic is agreed between the government uh, and, the, uh, and the bidders. Uh, these have proved successful. They've saved something like 20% in costs. Um, Shirley mentioned risks. Under these schemes, the biggest risks are, are taken by the private providers, by the concessionaires. These big risks are the cost, all the cost overruns are absorbed by the concessionaires and the traffic. If there's no traffic, they get, don't get paid, but they have to forecast the traffic. Well, if you pay people on the basis of traffic, uh, you, don't be pay, you won't be paying for many roads to nowhere. Where then do we go from here? What can you people do? to bring the private sector further in to the provision of roads. Well, first, um, remove the restrictions on federally <coughs> financed roads. By federally financed, I mean roads that have some federal money in them, even if the federal share is only 25%. I believe that this gives the federal government the power to impose its conditions. One penny. Even one, one penny. One penny. So, uh, at the moment, the thing that is really holding things up is the prohibition of tolling roads that have federal money in them. And um, as Shirley mentioned, these tolls, uh, these roads need to be, many of them need to be uh, replaced uh, or at least um, rehabilitated. And this can be done if the roads were told, and many of the roads are congested and need to be told. So that is one thing that maybe you could use your influence for, uh, to remove federal restrictions. Uh, second, accelerate the provision of um, hot lanes or express toll lanes. Again, uh, I don't know to what extent this is a federal uh, task other than a state task, but this is something that you could certainly encourage. A third is a more technical thing, which is encourage new ways of paying for roads. Instead of paying by means of taxes on fuel, think in terms of charges per mile. And various suggestions have been made. Uh, and 
I think the private sector would be prepared to put some money into this if uh, there, were, there was encouragement. To give you just one example of uh, an advantage, if uh, use of road was paid for on a mileage basis and the equipment was in the vehicle, it would be easier for insurance companies to charge road users premiums based on mileage, uh, precise mileage. Um, so people who do not travel very much and have low mileage would save on the insurance premiums. Um, there are various other advantages and I think this is something that needs to be looked at and I hope that uh, the Mika uh, bill actually will include provision for this sort of work. Uh, and of course, uh, my uh, I, 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 uh, recommendation for the ideal, um, end the federal financing of roads. Uh, Congress obviously has things to do now that are much more important than financing roads. Uh, Congress people have no time uh, to look after roads or transport. They have even run out of other people's money to spend, so they don't have the money. Um, let the states do it, which is what they used to do uh, until the 1950s. Well, thank you very much. to be an iconoclast, which means I refuse to use a PC, even if it's just for my PowerPoint show. Um, so it's going to take a second to get hooked up here. I'm going to talk about transit privatization. By all rights, nobody in this room should be concerned about public transit because it's an insignificant form of travel. It only carries less than 1% of all travel, passenger travel in the United States, virtually 0% of all freight and uh, it shouldn't occupy any of your time. And yet it does seem to occupy an inordinate amount of time, which may be one reason why our transit systems actually are broken today. According to the Federal Highway Administration, uh, our transit systems have a $78 billion maintenance backlog. And the reason for that is very simple. Uh, tra rail transit systems like the Washington Metro and the Atlanta rail system and mo most other recent rail systems have been built with federal dollars, local dollars paid for the operations, and nobody's paying for the rehabilitation and replacement that must be done every 30 years or so, just like we need to rebuild the interstate highway system every 50 years or so. So the, as anybody here who rides a Washington Metro knows, it's falling apart because nobody has the money to fix it. Uh, Chicago, believe it or not, is actually far worse than the Washington system. Boston's is far worse than the Washington system. New York is probably in a little better condition, but between Boston, Washington, Chicago, and, and uh, San Francisco, those four cities alone probably have a 40 to 50 billion dollar maintenance backlog. The total 78 billion dollar maintenance backlog is, includes all the other transit systems in the country combined. Now one reason why we have uh, serious problems with transit is because transit insists on uh, following a backwards technology system. For example, we have cities, Atlanta recently got approval to build a streetcar system. That's an 1890s technology. Uh, here in Washington, they're talking about building the Purple Line light rail. That's a 1930s technology. Uh, and then, of course, somebody, I forget his name, was talking about building high-speed rail. Uh, and that's a, a really a 1930s technology, too. Most of the high-speed trains that, what, what's his name, Obama wanted to build, uh, were going to be 110 miles an hour. This is a 
1939 train from Minneapolis to Chicago went 110 miles an hour. He also wanted to build some faster trains, a couple of faster trains. That was 1960s technology as used in Japan. So we're talking about backwards technology applied to today's problems. These technologies don't work. They were rejected primarily because they were far too expensive and in most cases were too slow and inconvenient compared to driving. Well, why do cities insist on adopting these backwards technologies? Well, one reason is that the vast majority of funds for transit come from taxes. Uh, only about 20 to 25 percent come from fares. And so if you're a transit agency, you care about what your transit riders need a lot less than you care about what the taxpayers are willing to pay or what you can convince the appropriators to give you. And trains are sexier than buses, and so you want to build a train because you'll get more money out of it, not because it provides better transit. It doesn't. In most cases, it provides worse transit than buses. Even where it is a little better, it's far, far more expensive and not worth the extra cost. Uh, cities have played a game of trying to capture as much money as they can out of the federal government, and the federal government has played along, such that even though transit only carries about 1% of all passenger travel, it's been getting more tax subsidies a year, and this is total federal, state, and local subsidies, more subsidies a year than highways, which carry about 85% of all passenger travel and about 28% uh, of all freight in the United States. Despite all of these subsidies, transit ridership hasn't really grown all that much. Since 1970, in fact, per capita transit ridership has actually declined, which means we've been throwing, we've, we've blown about a half a trillion dollars on transit, a lot of it building obsolete rail systems in the United States since 1970 and seen a decline in ridership. That's not a symptom of a good thing. Meanwhile, even though we haven't been spending that much on new highway construction, uh, highway driving has increased dramatically, whereas transit, you can see on this scale, is just a flat line. One of the problems is that transit agencies have huge taxing districts. This is the tax district for Portland, Oregon's transit agency. Almost all the people who want to ride transit are in that circle. But because they tax a much bigger area, they feel compelled to send buses and other forms of transit out into every corner of the area they tax. And the buses they send tend to be very large buses because after all, the federal government paid for the buses and so you might as well get a big one because the operating cost, it's the same driver whether it's a big bus or a little bus, right? That's the way they reason. Actually, it does cost a lot more to operate a big bus, but they reason that it's one driver per bus. So they get a big bus, so they end up with uh, empty buses. The average number of boardings per bus mile has steadily declined since 1970. The same is true with rail transit. As we build more and more rail lines into lower and lower density suburbs, we see the average number of boardings per rail line decline, and uh, we end up with uh, empty trains and empty buses. Now, one solution to this is not public-private partnerships. Uh, Shirley talked about public-private partnerships for highways. That's where we transfer the risk to the private sector. But what transit agencies call public-private partnerships does not transfer any risk at all. The Hudson-Bergen light rail was built with a public-private partnership. It had a huge cost overrun, and it was all paid for by the public. The difference is, with a highway public-private partnership, the private partner pays for the road, collects the tolls, and repays the cost of the road out of the tolls. With the transit public-private partnership, the private partner builds the rail line, then operates it and collects the fares, and then also collects a whole huge tax subsidy that guarantees them a profit whether or not anybody actually rides the train. So they have no incentive to be efficient compared to a highway public-private partner. So uh, 
I actually resent the fact that the transit agencies have tried to co-opt the term public-private partnerships uh, for their transit projects. Now to see what ought to be done with transit, we only have to look at intercity buses, which have experienced a resurgence. They're growing, they're the fastest growing mode of passenger travel in the United States today. They're growing almost twice as fast in ridership as Amtrak today. Uh, Megabus is one, Bolt is another. You've probably seen them if you haven't ridden on them. One of the ways that uh, the new intercity bus services have changed is they've changed how buses work. Uh, you know instead of going to a bus station, you often go to a curbside. But you also, instead of having a bus that takes you from, say, Washington to New York with stops in Baltimore and Wilmington and Philadelphia and maybe a bunch of other places, you now have a choice. You can take the bus from New York to Philadelphia, the bus to Wilmington, the bus to Baltimore, or the bus to Washington. So you get a nonstop service, whichever your destination is, and it's much faster and more convenient. Plus, the bus company can then orient the number of departures to the demand for each city. So for example, there's 139 to 155 different buses connecting uh, New York and Philadelphia a day, depending on the day of the week. 155 would be Saturday or Fridays and Sundays, and 139 would probably be Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Wilmington, only two to five buses a day. Not many people going from New York City to Wilmington. Uh, 50 to 60 to Baltimore, 139 to 211 a day to Washington, D.C. So the bus companies can customize it and they can uh, provide the kind of service that people want. <clears throat> the average passenger load on an urban transit bus is about nine people. That's, enough, that's nine passenger miles per vehicle revenue mile. The average passenger load on an intercity bus is more than 30 people. The difference is that the intercity buses go where people want to go because they're trying to earn a profit. The transit buses go where the taxpayers are because they're trying to justify charging them taxes. And so we end up with all these empty buses. If we privatize transit, we will be able to fill up the buses because they'll go where people want to go instead of to every nook and cranny, every suburb where that already has three cars in every garage and nobody's going to ride transit. Because the intercity buses are full, they're just about the most efficient form of motorized, urb, uh, motorized transportation we have in today. Uh, van pools are the one kind of urban transit that's more efficient than intercity buses. Transit buses, because they're empty, are the least efficient motorized transportation we have today, energy efficient transportation we have today. Uh, it's actually more energy inefficient than a SUV and emits more uh, pollution and carbon dioxide than an SUV. Light rail is more energy efficient than cars because they're empty for one thing and also because trains are really, really heavy and the heavy weight of the train makes up for the fact that steel wheels are a little more efficient than rubber tires. So if we privatize transit, what's it going to look like? Well, a lot of transit to more remote areas is going to look like super shuttle. You've probably taken a super shuttle to the airport or something like a super shuttle. Super shuttle will come and pick you up at your door and take you to the airport, pick you up at the airport and drop you off at your door. The problem is in most cities, Companies like Super Shuttle are not allowed to take you anywhere except to or from the airport. And so uh, you end up being stuck on Metro or driving your car or whatever. But if uh, Super Shuttle could compete anywhere, we'd see a lot more door-to-door -door, uh, uh, shared taxi service. And in fact, we do see that in, in a few cities where there are, there's no limit on competition. In Miami, for example, uh, most states have a, have a guarantee their transit agencies a legal monopoly, but Florida, doesn't, Florida does not. So Miami actually has a dozen different private bus companies competing with the public bus agency. The public agency charges $1.50 a ride. The private companies earn a profit charging $1 a dollar a ride. Oftentimes, they uh, run their buses in front of the public buses to capture their customers. Uh, and there's a little bit of tension about that. <laughs> if we go to, uh, if you go to Puerto Rico, 
Uh, there's something called the Publicos. They are shared taxis. They compete against the public bus company and the public train system in San Juan, and yet they carry more riders and more passenger miles a year than the bu public buses and trains combined. Again, they're a door-to-door -door service uh, with somewhat flexible routes. They're somewhat fixed routes, but somewhat flexible. And uh, they charge more than the public buses, but uh, they get more riders because they go where people want to go. If you go to Atlantic City, New Jersey, it's the only city I know in America, that, in the United States, that still has a private bus system. Uh, it's called the Atlantic City Jitney. Uh, they connect people to hotels, to casinos, they have designated routes. Some of their buses are free because the casinos are paying for them. Uh, and some of them, uh, you pay $1.50. Uh, they're all owned by the drivers and uh, they all uh, earn a profit. They get absolutely no subsidies. You won't find them in the National Transit Database. Houston is a city that allows this kind of a, a system uh, uh, by its ordinance, but when people asked for a permit, they wouldn't give them a permit. So after several years of litigation, they finally gave somebody a permit, and uh, her name is uh, Lauren Bassett. She runs what's called, she calls the Washington Wave because it started out going up and down Washington uh, Avenue in uh, Houston, but now it goes to many other places, and uh, that's a very successful and growing service. In New York City, we have uh, trains and buses connecting New York to New Jersey, and nobody ever thought that anybody would ever run, ride a ferry boat again. And so the ferry services were all left to decline and, and disappear. And then some guy bought some land, his name was Arthur Imperial, uh, uh, Imperator, and he bought some land in the New Jersey side and he wanted to develop it, and he thought, well, if I have a ferry service, I'll be able to develop my land. So he started something called the New York Waterway, and uh, he actually never managed to develop his land very much, but the New York Waterway proved extremely successful with routes connecting all kinds of places in New Jersey with several different places in New York. Once you get to the New York side, uh, you can catch a free bus or a bus that's part of your fare that takes you to a lot of different places in Manhattan. Uh, and that system is working very well. Uh, again, it's entirely private. It did receive a little bit of a subsidy after 911 to uh, help it make up for the uh, loss of the PATH service, but other than that, it has not gotten any subsidies. <clears throat> In Clayton County, Georgia, the county was providing uh, subsidized bus service between Clayton County and Atlanta, and it went out of business. The county said, we can't afford this subsidy anymore, so they just stopped doing it. The buses stopped running, and a private party came along and said, we're going to take over. They took over the routes. They charged $3.50 instead of the $1.50 that was being charged by CTRAN. Uh, but so far as I know, it's still running today and it's still successful uh, and it's taking people to work where they want to go. Now, people have this image of buses as being for the poor and homeless people and, you know, you don't want to be seen riding a bus. Reputedly, somebody once said, anybody over the age of 30 who's still riding a bus is a failure. Well, all of that is, is just absurd. If buses don't have to compete against subsidized trains, they will provide a wide variety of services. This is the Hampton Jitney. It connects the Hamptons on Long Island with Manhattan. The buses have only three rows, of, three columns of seats, so they're very plush. And uh, it's a first-class service. Some of them have galleys in the back so you get food. Uh, the, the fare is enough to cover the cost. I think it's $27 or something to get from Manhattan to, to the Hamptons. And uh, it works very well. You'll get different classes of service between New York and, and Washington. You have the regular bus service, but there's also the Vamoose Gold service with, like this, only three rows of seats. Uh, between Washington or New York and Boston, there's something called the limo liner that only has 27, 28 seats on the bus, as opposed to this, which has 36 seats, has uh, food services, uh, movies, and of course, free Wi-Fi and all kinds of other things. So you can get classes of service with buses if we privatize it, uh, and then it won't be a kind of a stigma where only poor people ride it. Now, 
Some people are going to say, well, what if we privatize it and everybody doubles the fares? How are poor people going to get to work? Well, if we really are concerned about low-income people, we shouldn't be supporting transit bureaucracies and rail construction companies and rail car manufacturers. We should support poor people. We can give them transportation stamps. And that might be one way to take care of transportation for low-income people and disabled people rather than having these gigantic subsidies that aren't working at all. Then we'll get a whole variety of different transit systems. We'll get a whole variety of different transit options. Uh, and we'll probably have much better service, especially for the people in the inner cities that really uh, need transit. Uh, I discuss all this in a lot more detail in my policy paper, which I think there are copies outside called uh, The Case for Privatizing Transit. And uh, you might also be interested in taking a look at my blog where I discuss these issues quite often. It's called the Anti-Planner. Just Google Anti-Planner, and I'm the first thing on the list. Thank you very much. <laughs>